You know, I, I, I really do think that all cultures have a relationship with fire. And some of us don't have that far to go back in our ancestral knowledge to find that connection. Our spirit, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like our life force is attracted to things that we're familiar with. A relationship with fire that's been going on since we became homo sapiens, you know what I mean? From Interlochen Public Radio, this is Unnatural Selection. I'm Morgan Springer. And I'm Dan Wanshura. This series looks at the role of humans in the natural world. As a species, we have dramatically changed the landscapes we inhabit, for better and for worse. Today, Episode 5, Rekindling Wilderness. Reporter Patrick Shea has the story. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Dan. Hi, Morgan. So what do you got for us today? Today, I've got a story that challenges the entire premise of this series. Wow. Okay. Uh, How so? Well, these are all stories about, I guess, environmental management, for lack of a snappier term, right? Yeah. Right. And the title is Unnatural Selection. And doesn't that sort of imply that our selections, what what we do in the environment, that that isn't natural? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's like with the word unnatural selection, it's as if everything we do is is apart from nature rather than a part of nature. Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, I, I'm realizing it sort of suggests this separation between the human world and the natural world. And that concept is pretty widely accepted in American society. I mean, I can definitely say I grew up with that idea that nature's out there apart from us somehow, and there's a good chance we all did. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear the word wilderness? Vast expanse of land, not a person in sight. Yeah, like the backcountry in a way. Yeah, yeah. You're out there with the animals, and once in a while you might see a fellow hiker. Yeah, I mean, no people is a big one. I I think that's pretty spot on if you look at the legal definition of wilderness here in the U.S. Rosalind Lapeer is an environmental historian. She says the Wilderness Act, which was passed in 1964, influences the way we think about these places today. In the Wilderness Act, we define wilderness as a place untrammeled by man, um, as a place that is pristine, a place where man is just a visitor and does not remain. That definition really erases, you know, indigenous peoples off the landscape. But this story is an example of that definition being totally wrong. Because some of our most cherished wilderness destinations have actually been shaped by human action, specifically with the use of fire. Today, we're going to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. It's on Minnesota's border with Canada, more than a million acres of lakes, islands, and peninsulas. Every year, around 250,000 people venture into this labyrinth of land and water. The most popular spots are in old-growth pine forests, where sun fills the woods and blueberries are just everywhere. And speaking of popular, did you know that the Boundary Waters is the most visited wilderness area in the entire country? I did not know that. I mean, I'm not including parks here. I'm talking actual, bona fide wilderness. That's the highest kind of protection a natural area can get in this country. 
Like these are places where you can't take a motor vehicle of any kind or even a bicycle, and you can only visit in small groups. It's a whole nother level of getting away from it all. That's exactly what Evan Larson came to the Boundary Waters to do as a kid. My earliest memories are of this really kind of wet, heavy, foggy, mysterious place. And I've got these images of like seeing a bull moose across a lake, you know, kind of like walking through in this misty rain. And one trip we climbed up on top of some of the bluffs and like looking from that high and across this landscape and just seeing lakes and trees. And that's it. Um, yeah, my early, early introductions were very much, you know, it was a place to go and get away from people. But in the summer of 2011, Evan was there for a different reason. He was part of a team of researchers trying to piece together the history of these forests. They traveled by canoes searching for old fallen trees. When they'd find one, they'd look at the annual growth rings. That can tell you the age of a tree, but also what was going on around it. Things like droughts, floods, or fires. And near the end of that research trip, they came across something that started to change their perception of this landscape. We got up, you know, before the sun was up, got on the water when it was just glass, and we just booked it. And we did this incredible loop up and around Coleman Island and back, and the first island that we stopped at, and we got out and came onto some of these stumps that had five, six, seven very clear fire scars. Um, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that in the Boundary Waters. Evan says the dominant narrative at that point was that fires here were few and far between, and those were big fires started by lightning strikes. But what he and his colleagues found over the next several summers was widespread evidence of smaller, more frequent fires. That was really eye-opening to realize that within this landscape that, you know, the, the common knowledge and the basic assumption was that, yeah, there's fire and it's really important, but it's these big events every hundred years, and it just torches the landscape and it starts everything fresh. And so to start finding these, especially on islands and peninsulas, these spots where you had five, six, seven fires occurring within the lifespan of an individual tree, that was really what made us start to realize there is a, a more nuanced story waiting to be told. And that story is one of environmental management a major human footprint in a place we now call wilderness. Evan and his colleagues were seeing signs of prescribed fire. Those fires were started by the Ojibwe who cultivated these forests. Wait, wait back up a second, Patrick. How can you tell all that from an old tree stump? Okay, that's a good question, but the answer is going to take us into the weeds a little bit, so bear with me. Let's do it. This research method is called dendrochronology. That's a 16-letter word but Lane Johnson can break it down for us. He was with Evan Larson on that island in the Boundary Waters, looking at those stumps, and they've co-authored several papers together about their findings. People typically break dendrochronology into like the two root words, so dendro in reference to trees, uh, chronos, chronology, reference to time, so it's the study of time through tree rings. Lane is a research forester at the University of Minnesota's Cloquet Forestry Center, that's about a two-hour drive south of the Boundary Waters. I met Lane there, and we went for a walk through a grove of these massive red pines. This is pretty classic 
fire damage. We're stopped at a red pine about eight feet around and 90 feet tall. Where you've got uh, exposed wood without bark, you've got frozen resin oozing out of the heart of the pine. There's char that uh, suggests there are multiple fires, not just one. When a tree like this one falls down, that is an old tree with signs of fire damage, that gives researchers like Lane a perfect opportunity to look into the past by looking inside the tree. And that part is actually pretty simple. It's just counting. One, two, three, and if you count the tree rings from the outer edge all the way to the center, you can figure out the tree's age and when it got its first fire scar. Uh, this tree scarred when it was relatively young, 1681, 1682. Wow. Huh, oh, wait, wait. 1600s? That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? I, yeah. I just think this stuff is so cool. You know, to be interacting with a piece of wood that old. And that he can pinpoint it within a couple of years, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, trees, they're just like such good record keepers with these rings. And I mean, this chunk of red pine in Minnesota, right, is almost 200 years older than the state of Minnesota. Wow. That really puts it in context, yeah. Gives me some some home state pride right there, Patrick. <laughs> it's it, There's some pretty cool trees over there, Dan. And, you know... So much history has happened around these trees. It just blows my mind. Anyways, fires show up as these strange little squiggles in the tree ring record. And you can see the kind of the ripples. Here's fire number two, okay. three, four. I think I'm seeing it now, like fire, yep, fire, fire. Yep. Okay. But just because fires happened in the past, that doesn't mean they were started by people. It doesn't necessarily tell you anything without proper context. But like this particular tree, this came from the Boundary Waters. It has seven to eight fires recorded on it over its life. It's growing on a, a small island. If you look at the modern period, the frequency of lightning starts on that particular landform, there, there aren't any. And so it makes you sort of wonder where was all the fire coming from in an island setting like that? And where did it go? Where did it go? Lane, Evan, and others noticed a pattern in the Boundary Waters and all over the Upper Great Lakes. On almost all the trees with fire damage, scars stopped showing up around the same time. You know, there was this stump, and the record starts in the 1700s, and it's fire, 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 fire. There's 10 fire years, and then it stops in the 1890s. And, you know, lightning did not stop in the 1890s. What did stop were prescribed fires. Lane and Evan were looking at physical evidence of the government's assault on indigenous cultures. Our, our Ojibwe Anishinaabe identity is based on this burned landscape and the ecosystem that fire creates as a result of that. That's Damon Panek, who you heard in the intro to this episode. And if this space had fire in it, which it did, but now it doesn't. What does that mean for like our connection to our origin space, right? Damon is a member of the White Earth Nation, and he works as a wildlife operations manager for the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Prescribed fire is a big part of his job, and he says it's been a key part of Ojibwe culture since time immemorial. It's like way deeper than just burning a space, especially like what we're trying to do recently with a lot of the, the berry burns, like the blueberry burns. Remember those tall red pines and blueberry patches in the Boundary Waters? Blueberries thrive in open forests with lots of sun. They also do really well in acidic soils. And pine needles are acidic. 
And then the final link here is that red pines thrive with fire. It keeps out competition from other, more flammable tree species. Damon says that by frequently burning these forests, his ancestors created ideal conditions for blueberries to grow. And back then, maximizing blueberry production was a matter of life and death. Imagine being uh, a native person living here 500 years ago through the winters that they had back then. It was negative 15 today. Yeah, negative 15 today, right? Yeah, so I mean, even just that, providing for your family for a winter up here was tough. It's almost like your whole summer was like preparing for winter. You know what I mean? Because you're just like, you know what's coming, and you got to have that cache of food. So if you know that you can create an abundance of berries so that you can harvest them and you can store up, then wouldn't you do it? Yeah. I would. Absolutely. It makes complete sense that they created that abundance with fire so that they could have food. Yeah. But then starting in the late 1800s, prescribed fire was made illegal by state and federal governments, which was exactly when Lane and Evan saw the fire scars stop. The ban came after big, out-of-control wildfires destroyed homes and towns, but the big motivation for the government was the forests. They wanted to protect valuable timber from going up in smoke. In reality, prescribed fires weren't particularly dangerous, but still, anyone caught igniting one could be fined for the value of that timber, even up to $5,000. $5,000 in like the late 1800s was a lot of money. It still is. I wouldn't want a $5,000 fine. Totally. But what was maybe even more costly back then was the jail time you could face. Because that was time you couldn't spend getting ready for those harsh winters we talked about. This action from the government led to indigenous land management being put on hold. That marked the beginning of fire suppression in the Upper Great Lakes. And Damon says the suppression of fire goes hand in hand with the suppression of knowledge. The only way to know it is to do it. You know, we didn't have like manuals for how to manage a forest and things like that. It was literally passed on through story, through observation. But for any kind of cultural practice, you could lose that institutional knowledge about that if you stop doing it. And for more than a century, they did stop doing that, for the most part. And so they'd have to like sneak it, right? They go take uh, like a rock and wrap it with birch bark and be driving down the road and start it on fire and throw it out the window. These people are still trying to do this stuff because it was part of their understanding of their relationship with this landscape. But all these kind of like external forces kept on kind of pushing back. Damon says you can recover suppressed knowledge by working to bring fire back. In 2017, he helped make that happen on federal land. That's when the National Park Service held a prescribed burn in Apostle Island's National Lakeshore. That's on the south shore of Lake Superior. Damon has deep family ties to those islands and wanted to bring back indigenous cultural practices there. Before the burn, he first surveyed the neighboring tribal communities, and he heard about this history of blueberry harvests on Stockton Island, part of the National Lakeshore. Uh, one elder would talk about how they hung like grapes and like another elder talked about when he was a little kid, he remember just like sitting in the blueberry bush and all he could see was blue. There are still blueberries there, but not like that. One elder even remembered the last prescribed fire on the island. Then Damon brought in researchers who affirmed those memories. And so we, we took the academics, the general chronology work. We ended up having a big get together with park managers, uh, DNR folks, 
tribal folks. Uh, we had a discussion about whether or not we should burn on this landscape. And they decided they should. The Park Service started making a burn plan, in part because of the cultural value of blueberry harvests to the neighboring tribal communities, but also because there's a rare ecosystem on Stockton Island that would eventually get shaded out by other species if it isn't burned. A couple months before the burn, the local Redcliffe Band of Lake Superior Chippewa held a feast to commemorate the event. Uh, we basically invited any tribe that had any sort of interest in the area, interest in the islands to it, and we ended up having, I think, 13 different tribes represented at that ceremony. Tribal folks from, from Michigan, from Wisconsin, all over Wisconsin, all over Minnesota. And that was basically like, in a way, like letting the island know we're going to burn again. A couple months later, the, the weather window uh, opened up and we had the chance to do it. So we burned on October 20th, 2017, five acres on uh, Stockton Island. We, we you know, let the fire kind of like back across the landscape so it'll go against the wind. So what, what happens then is it, it just kind of marches really slow across the landscape and it just was perfect. Did that feel like a, like a turning point for management in the Great Lakes? Yeah. Do you think things are starting to change? Yeah, I think so. And I think more land management agencies are taking into account more of the traditional cultural practice and utilizing that knowledge to influence their decisions on, on that land. The National Park Service now has an official burn plan for Stockton Island, with fires scheduled every few years. And that's really quite a pivot from the late 1800s, to see the federal government, in this instance, returning the cultural use of fire to the landscape. Stockton Island is a success story. But Damon says there's still an irony in the way that so-called wilderness is typically managed. Take the Boundary Waters, for example. It was set aside to be left alone. But we know that the most popular spots for visitors, open forests with old red pines, blueberries everywhere, those places didn't just exist like that on their own. You think of like all these uh, national parks or these, these natural areas, their conditions which prompted them to become protected are a result of management of fire over all these years. So like the Boundary Waters wouldn't be what it is without fire on the landscape. And that's what qualified it to become a protected area, which is super interesting because then when these management agencies come in, then they exclude, they exclude what caused it to become that protected area. It's like, it's just crazy. Without fire, places that have been cherished for centuries will start to change. Damon, Lane, and Evan, they all hope to see a rekindled relationship with fire in the Upper Great Lakes. And Evan Larson says this growing body of research and the way it's being used, it feels important and somehow familiar. So it's been really hard to focus on a lot of my other research because it seems so insignificant compared to the implications of this project. You know, one of our collaborators on part of this is Robin Kimmer, and she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And the the response to that book, I think, really exemplifies this yearning that people have to start to understand the deeper relationships that we've always felt, I think, or we've we've wanted, and that connection to place. And I think that that's really important. And I think one of the one of the really key lessons 
from that perspective is that so much of the narrative is about how human impacts are always negative. You know, the title of this series <laughs> suggests that like, yeah, if you say human impact, what you mean is bad. And I think fire history and red pine in the boundary waters, there's very few things that better exemplify how human actions and human impacts can be beautiful. Today's episode was written and produced by Patrick Shea. Coming up next week, dam removals across the U.S. have been good for river ecosystems. But when you remove a barrier, sometimes unwelcome species find their way in and wreak havoc. It's a problem that fishery managers throughout the world face. How do you get good things past a barrier while denying the bad things access to that stream? Our struggles to create healthy rivers next time on Unnatural Selection. That's all for Unnatural Selection this week. I'm Morgan Springer, editor of this series and co-host, along with Dan Wanchura. That's me. Consulting editor is Peter Payette. Music for this episode by Max Dragu, Marlon Ladine, Santa, and Easter. Aaron O'Malley did our logo. Special thanks to Kyle Gill of the Cloquet Forestry Center and to Kurt Kipfmuller of the University of Minnesota for help with this story. Unnatural Selection is a special series of our podcast, Points North. You can find more environmental stories from the Upper Great Lakes at pointsnorthradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do consider subscribing to, rating, and reviewing the show. We appreciate it.